Hello, I'm Jason Solomons, and welcome to another edition of Sounds Jewish from The Guardian, the show that puts the Jew into June. In this month's show, a star-studded film to force the Y word, that's Yid, out of football. Co-director and our studio guest David Bedil says it's time to kick anti-Semitism out of football once and for all. But what do ordinary Spurs fans make of it? When Spurs fans use it, they certainly use it as a badge of honour. Uh, there's no racism intended uh, or taken. It's as offensive as calling a black person by the N-word or an Asian person by the P-word. Why they think it's acceptable to call Spurs fan yet is wrong. And David will explain why the great American Jewish writers from Philip Roth to Saul Bellow loom so large in his latest and widely acclaimed new novel, The Death of Eli Gold. And finally, from social networking to drug running, what made actor Jesse Eisenberg take on the role in his latest film about a Hasidic ecstasy dealer? I'll be speaking to him in an exclusive interview. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. As I said before, joining me in the studio this month is none other than David Badil. Welcome, David. Lovely to have you back here. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm very well, indeed. I'm looking forward to getting our... Just locking horns on football, literature and film. These are good things. Yes, these are all good things. things. And obviously the most Jewish things in the world. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, And and actually, to that effect, the literary editor of the Jewish Chronicle joins us. Lifelong Spurs fan, lifelong book fan, Gerald Jacobs. Welcome, Gerald. Thank you very much, Jason. Good to be here. Uh, it's my pleasure. I shall be a referee between you two uh, London clubs. As another London club myself, we have the, the triangle of, of, of this season's failures. Not, not a popular The Bermuda Triangle yeah. as it's been yeah, this not, season, yeah, really. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's fair to say that Jews love football. Myself, I'm a lifelong Arsenal supporter, even if this season has been a harsh and bitter journey. Traditionally, though, the club that's historically attracted the most Jewish support is Spurs, whose ground at White Hart Lane in Tottenham was a magnet for thousands of Jews from the East. East End. The allegiance has never really shifted for British Jews, with a few notable exceptions. David, you're a Chelsea fan. Mm. Are there many Jewish Chelsea fans? Quite a few, I think. I mean, actually, in terms of the allegiance and blah, 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 uh, I don't actually know how many uh, Jewish Chelsea fans there are. I know a few others, but uh, I've been told that there are more Jewish Arsenal fans yeah, that's, than Spurs that's a sort fans. Of a, I don't know if it's true. It's an urban myth. Well, it's an urban myth based on a historical urban myth, which is that, that obviously Stamford Hill and that kind of area is a Jewish area. Now, obviously now, that, apart from Stamford Hill, Tottenham's probably mainly a kind of Greek area. So it doesn't still have that uh, there at all. But obviously, historically, Spurs got seen yeah. as the Jewish club, which is what led to the Yiddo charm. Why are you a Spurs fan, Gerald Jacobs? It's inherited, I think. Although my father was not a particular football fan, my uncle was. He used to take me. And uh, Where were they from? They're from the East End. Mm. Yeah. So that was a well, there was a sort of yeah. migrancy yes, that, yes. that way. Yes. Uh, but David, you and your brother Ivor Badil, also a previous guest here on uh, on Sounds Jewish, have made the Y Word, a film aimed at tackling what you see as anti-Semitism in the game. Let's have a listen. There was a word beginning with N that some football fans used to shout at players like me. They don't do it anymore. There was a word beginning with P that some football fans used to shout at players like me, but they don't do that anymore either. But for some reason, a lot of fans still shout this word. And it begins with why. What they're chanting is a racist word for Jews, the Y word. The Y word is just as bad and just as offensive as the N word and the P word. But some of you might think, nah, they just mean Tottenham fans. That's what they call themselves. It's just a bit of a laugh. Is it? Well, what about these chants? Get 
Apart from anything else, racist chanting is against the law. It's against the law to call someone a Y-word in the street. It's against the law to call someone a Y-word in a supermarket. It's against the law to call someone a Y-word at a football match. Back in the 1930s and 40s, Jewish people all over Europe were being rounded up and killed. People called them Yids. So if, in today's game, you fancy joining in with what you think is a bit of harmless chanting... Again. Think again. Think again. Certainly we'll have to think again. Hearing uh, Spurs are on their way to Auschwitz being sung there, uh, sort of cold and naked in my ears here mm. in the studio, uh, gives it an even more chilling uh, than, it, than it is actually hearing well, it in, in real life. One of the key life. things about that is, um, and, uh, it, it is that we're going to go on to discuss the whole Spurs question, but of course none of those fans in that film are Spurs fans. And actually people who don't understand the whole issue even think that those fans singing Spurs are on the way to Auschwitz are Spurs fans. Of course they're not. Those particular fans are Chelsea fans. Um, and the two fans fans uh, in the footage you would see uh, shouting Yiddo at the start are Chelsea fans and Arsenal fans. And uh, the, so the primary instigation for this film came actually nothing to really to do with Spurs or only glancing to do with Spurs, which is that me and my brother, Ivor, as you say, have put up with for years and years and years, we've been going to Chelsea since the 70s, any kind of Spurs thing that happened. So this, this actual event wasn't, we weren't playing Spurs. Spurs, it came up on the screen, they were losing, you may remember this, to Hull a couple of seasons ago. We were playing Villa. It came up on the screens. It was a dull game. So the fans decided to perk themselves up by chanting Yiddo. And we, as ever, as Jews, sat there uncomfortable. Yeah, you don't join in with that. Because it's not a, not, that's not an affectionate chant of Yiddo by any circumstances. That's a hateful, aggressive mm. chant of it. The fact that it means Spurs is kind of irrelevant. Because as a Jew, I'm hearing Yid chanted with menaces. Yeah. And we get it at Arsenal when any, any, any Tottenham player who yeah. used to play for Tottenham and turns up with another yeah. team, uh, gets to Tottenham Reject, Tottenham Reject, yeah. Yiddo, Yiddo, Yiddo. Exactly. I don't join in and also, with Yiddo, well, Yiddo. And, but Here's the thing, is it slides so easily between meaning Tottenham person or Tottenham thing and Jew. And we actually saw this happening a couple of years ago when a guy about four seats behind us, who's not a regular, not a season ticket holder, just started chanting, I don't know how much I'm allowed to swear on the podcast. I'm allowed to swear on the podcast? Okay. He started chanting, fuck the Yids, fuck the fucking Yids. And then about two seconds later, fuck the Jews, fuck the fucking Jews. And my brother, who's a little bit harder than me, but not much, a little bit heavier, got up and told him to shut up and the bloke wouldn't shut up. No stewards did anything, mm. despite there being a zero tolerance towards racism thing that's supposed to be a football. So ground. was that the moment that you said, "Well, I'm going to make a film about this"? No, that happened was I actually contacted. It was horrible. My brother sat down and said, "I think I'm going to cry." Mm. Uh, it was really, really offensive and unpleasant. And I uh, contacted Bruce Buck, uh, who happens to be Jewish actually, and who's uh, the chair of Chelsea. And he said, "Well, we'll try and find him, and we'll do this that, and the other." But it was difficult. Difficult to find. There's no CCTV in that part of the ground. It would have meant if they could find him litigation. And then Ivor said, perhaps it would be more constructive to go to kick racing out of football, make one of those films like we've often seen about black players mm. and Asian players and whatever, but about this subject. And actually we had an awful lot of resistance to it initially. Right, it was interesting because we heard the voices there. I mean, anyone would recognise Gary Lineker, Frank Lampard, uh, Ledley King. King. Kieran Gibbs. Here's another one. Uh, Rachel Yankee, the uh, very good uh, female player. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, all those people. So, you, But was it difficult to persuade them to join the campaign and to take that seriously? Especially Gary Lineker as well, who obviously well, no, Gary many years the key at Spurs. One. Yeah. Actually, Gary Lineker's the key one. As a Spurs player, but someone who's clearly you know, been through all that and thinks now more deeply about what it means, you know, having those kind of messages, he was quite keen on doing it. And so as soon as Gary did it, everyone 
thought it was all right. And mm. so suddenly Frank Lampard was doing it and Ledley King and all the rest of it. But we had to spend a long time negotiating with Tottenham. Uh, we uh, did go down to White Hart Lane. We sent Sounds Jewish reporter Daniel Stander, who sounds quite Jewish, to White Hart Lane to their last match of the season against Birmingham. You sent them down, Gerald. Cruel blow. Uh, what do ordinary Spurs fans feel about the Y word? So I'm here in the ground and uh, with us in the Spurs end in the North Stand and I'm with a fan here. And your name? Nick Lee. And Nick, how long have you been a fan for? Uh, all my life. 45 years. So, have you heard about the film that David Baddiel's making, about the Y word? Yes. What do you think about it? Uh, I'm pleased that this has come out. Uh, being Jewish myself, I've always taken offence to the word Yid that comes out. Um, everyone seems to do it, they associate Spurs with it, and I think it's wrong. It's as offensive as calling a black person by the N-word or an Asian person by the P-word. It, it's no difference, but why they think it's acceptable to call Spurs fan Yid is wrong. So David Baddiel has made a short film. It's got many uh, high-profile footballers with him. What do you think about it? I mean, we've basically um, have a, adopted it because that's what we were called by every other team in London. Um, and we do have a large Jewish uh, percentage of our, of our fans who are joining in and are quite happy and relaxed about that. I'm here with Johnny. Johnny, you a Spurs fan? I am. And have you heard about the film that David Baddiel's made, um, kind of akin to the FA trying to kick racism out of football about the Y word, kicking that out of football? I have. And can you tell us what you think about that? First of all, it's interesting that uh, it's a bunch of Chelsea fans have made a film that appears to uh, at least apportion an element of blame in the direction of Spurs fans for racist chanting, which is... Uh, it's slightly strange and when Spurs fans use it they certainly use it as a badge of honour uh, there's no racism intended uh, or taken in actual fact and given that I'm Jewish as well myself certainly have no problem with the use of the Y word uh, when it's used against us you tend to uh, find that it's used in a, in a very detrimental context certainly at Chelsea the other week uh, despite the showing of that film uh, the Chelsea fans were certainly not above uh, um, racist abuse uh, directed at Spurs fans Gerald, if I come uh, to you, Gerald Jacobs, literary editor of the uh, Jewish Chronicle, you wrote a piece there. The headline was, Why the Y word is my word. And Yid is, is the derogatory name for Jews, of course. It's chanted with great ferocity uh, at Spurs. When you go to White Hart Lane, it takes on a, a, an almost different hue. I don't think it's ferocity. I think it's passion rather than ferocity. That implies a kind of aggression straight away. You yourself chant this word, do you? No, 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 but I don't find it offensive. I find it quite warm and amusing. Well, why don't you, you join in with it? it? Uh, because I don't join any chance. I'm too old. You know, I don't well, do that. Well, I don't, years I, ago, why didn't you chant it? Because I was probably too old then. It's, it's no, quite you relevant. weren't, Gerald. How I don't chant. I don't, never you chant. Don't chant. What kind of football fan I are you? I never chant. <laughs> I, not I much, stand haven't up. been worth singing about for exactly. years, to be I honest. I stand up, <laughs> I scream, I shout, and uh, I shout at the opposition, the referee, and our own players mainly. But uh, no, I don't. It's well, not, Gerald, not something I, put, I do. Shall I put forward, because I've now done this a number of times, actually I haven't thought about the Y word for a little while, but okay. I've, I've, what the arguments are. Because the, sure, first, the sure first point is it isn't all about Spurs. You know, it's, you know, it, it happens at, uh, obviously at Arsenal, at Chelsea, at West Ham, at Millwall, actually anywhere where there's a, any kind of Jewish involvement. Apparently it was heard at Huddersfield. You know, Ajax have got a similar yeah. chant. Um, Huddersfield? And, 
Apparently, yeah, because there's a Jewish chairman, or there was a Jewish chairman there. Um, and that's the point. Uh, you know, I've heard it many times, like it was chanted at, at Ben Ayoun, who's never played for Tottenham when he played for Liverpool, came to Chelsea. So yeah. it does mean Jew. It doesn't just mean Tottenham fan. It was chanted at Maccabi when they came to play, Maccabi Haifa when they came to play us. But here's the thing. Here's the, there's a number of issues with Spurs doing it. Right? The primary one is that it informs, however affectionate they think they're being, I know, from being a Chelsea fan, that it informs and sustains the hate chants. If you speak to Chelsea fans about why they chant horrible things about Jews, they'll say, well, they call themselves the Yids. That sort of makes it all right. So that's point A. Point two, which is a sort of bigger and more complex one, is it is not like Snoop Doggy Dog reclaiming the N-word, because, of course, most Spurs fans are not Jewish. And so, therefore, it is really like a mainly white club, perhaps, say, that was in Brixton, chanting, calling themselves the N-word or the N-word army. And that would be stopped very quickly. So, in fact, what this is is an example of anti-Semitism not being taken as seriously as as other racisms by the culture. And the third most simple one is you cannot have a campaign trying to get people to stop chanting racist language and say, oh, but it's all right in this context. That is not a film you can make. So you're saying because yeah. the N-word and the P-word have been kicked out of football, to be honest, we don't hear them very often no, anymore, no. um, that the, the, the Y-word should have been included well, I'm saying these. Yes, I, I'm saying that in football. I'm saying in general, I would say the word yid in any context, is not considered as bad as the words nigger or packy. And why is that? Mm. And in my opinion, that's because anti-Semitism is sort of a second-class racism. And my worry is, with Gerald saying, well, actually, it's kind of okay, and we mean it in this nice Mm. way, that you are sustaining that fallacy. One area where um, Yid is not considered a particularly racist is is among Jews, in fact. Jews do call themselves Yids. Uh, When... Yiddle mitten fiddle is played. Jews cry with happiness and joy. Yes, so and it's, black it's not people call themselves niggers, but that doesn't allow people who are not black to call them niggers. And most Spurs fans, the ones that I see at Stamford Bridge or the ones I see when we play them in the Carling Cup final, are not Jewish. Big Yorkshire men shouting Yid army. They have but, no right to do that. See, I don't have the problem that David has posed that uh, of um, having non-Jews reclaim that word a bit for me. I mean, that's fine by me. As long as it, it, there is, context is all. And you, you, one has to just accept this will sometimes be used in a positive way. It's, it's a pressure cooker. And context is not all, No, it'll move on. It'll move on to something. But do you, unless, we, unless people say, right, we are going to kick the yid out of football, uh, then it won't go. I mean, so unless someone's make a fuss like David, then, then, it, then there's no reason for but it the, to go. What's really hideous about the Chelsea fans' chant is the Auschwitz bit and the hissing. But do you not see and any you relationship think... between the two? Well, no do, organic but... relationship between the two. You don't acknowledge that if you stop calling yourself Yid, you as Spurs fans, yeah. then they would have nothing to chant about. They wouldn't have that chant. And by the way, the context thing is very important. A woman got chucked off Big Brother a few series ago, a white woman, for in a friendly way, a nice way, calling a black woman at the N-word. She was immediately chucked off. The culture won't have it. A lot of anti-black racism uh, that was in football before, say, 30 years ago, was cleared up by the fact that most teams who, who, would, who would sort of chant black uh, insults at uh, players uh, now have black players yes. on their team. I think, I think If there were more Jewish players... Would this yes. not make, and everyone had a Jewish player on their books, would this not be some sort of kind of strange quota? But it would, it would make things a lot fairer. No one could then insult yeah, the but then, then you have to change, you know. Well, actually, I play football. Do you play football? Do yeah, play I football? do, but you... I don't think I'll be signed up by any of our teams. No, well, that's the problem, are. you see. That's the problem is basically Jews have to be better at football. Is I what played for Wingate and people used to shout you... Yid and Jew and all that sort of thing. So the whole team was shouting. The whole team. Anti-Semitic abuse was shouted at them. Yeah. 
and you were, you were fine with it. Fine with it, lovely, yeah. yes. Just do the talking on the pitch, Gerald, so dribble, score... <laughs> Yeah. There you go. No one yeah, makes me. Well, actually, <laughs> it will come together. There's a million at least. Yeah. Um, on the subject of racism in football, uh, the JCC, our sponsors, have organised a special screening of Kick It Out, a film about the experiences on and off the field of B'nai Sakhnin, an Israeli team fielding both Arab and Jewish players. The film will be followed by a discussion with David's brother, Ivor Badil, mm. and Itzak Shanan, the founder and director of Kick Racism Out of Football, Israel. See the Sounds Jewish blog for more details. As Eli Gold, a great American Jewish writer, lies in a coma, fragments of his life are pieced together by four characters from his life. His eight-year-old daughter, Colette, his grown-up son, Harvey, from a previous marriage, a Mormon who was once Eli's brother-in-law and now bent on revenge, and finally, Gold's first wife, Violet, who lives in a nursing home in London. That's the premise, vaguely, of David Baddiel's latest novel, The Death of Eli Gold. You've been a busy boy, haven't you, David? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know. Films. <laughs> films, films, books, books yeah. the whole no, lot. It's a Jewish thing, isn't exactly. it? It's overachieving. Yeah, no weightlifting, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, what was the starting point uh, when you first started conceiving of the book? And, and how long did it... Because you mentioned it last time you were on Sounds Jewish, yeah. and now, now it's out. How, yeah. how long does it, has it taken you? Well, I was doing other stuff whilst writing. I, I do tend to do too much, and, um, you know, that has all sorts of consequences but I was making the infidel whilst I was writing this book uh, which meant that it took longer I think uh, but the starting point would have been 2005 which I think is when Saul Bellow died and when Saul Bellow died um, I was interested in obviously I'm actually not a huge fan of Bellow but I was interested in something when he died you which, say that I know I know it's more radical than the fact that I've used the n-word about five times on this podcast I've said I don't I don't really like Saul Bellow it's partly because I'm a much greater fan of John Updike and I was always upset that he was always kind of the Chelsea to Bellow's Manchester United that always annoyed me but um yeah when he Roth died Spurs. yeah yeah Roth is Spurs obviously he's a unit. Um, so, meanwhile uh, yeah, when he died, I noticed that obviously there were many, many eulogies in the press, and they all did, all tended to end his obituaries with his wife and daughter by his bedside. And for some reason, I was drawn to that idea because he, he had five wives, saw Bellow. So it didn't say this eighty-nine-year-old man, his wife thirty-nine, and his daughter eight. And it struck me, what is that like for the eight-year-old? You know, these men men are often criticised for having children very late in life, but this was uh, the one time that I thought the tableau that that criticism is about, which is that a child will, in a, at a very early age, have to actually sit by her father's deathbed. I'd never really thought about it before. and then it, So I decided to write initially from the point of view of the child, and then I didn't want to write a whole novel from the point of view of a child. But it's really about maleness, actually. The book is really about maleness and greatness and a certain type of male greatness that I think is passing. Um, David, you've kindly brought a, a copy of I your have. large novel with you. Um, could you read us an extract of The Death I of could. I don't novel? know how long you want me to read, uh, so stop me, uh, although... Yeah, I'll do my best. Uh, uh, Harvey Gold is uh, Eli's, from his third marriage, uh, 44-year-old son, who is a uh, very much not got his talent. He's a kind of celebrity ghostwriter, very screwed-up man, uh, but he hasn't seen his dad for, for much of his life because he split up with his mum and took him to England, where he's grown up. But he has decided to come back and sort of do the deathbed vigil thing. Uh, and so uh, this is a bit where he's just arrived in America and he's bought something he really likes, uh, which are sour sweets, which he thinks you can get in America in a way you can't do in England. Half mad with the craving, and once through the small hiccup in customs, he had dashed inside the first available confectionery containing store, leaving his baggage on the trolley outside, aching to be control exploded by security. The shop had stocked no zowers, 
leading Harvey into a mad 20 seconds of uncertainty, his eyes riffling through the Hershey's and the Oreos, until finally asking in a voice hoarse with desire, do you have any sour sweets? The store assistant, a ginger-haired fuzzy-faced woman, looked blank. So Harvey looked down, ashamed, feeling that her blankness must contain a condemnation, a deadpan amazement that a man of his age should have such adolescent needs at which stage he noticed that her index finger had stirred from its fellows and was indicated downwards and to the left. Harvey's eyes followed past the brown and green and pinks and nearly missed it because it wasn't in a wrapper. It wasn't even as sweet as such, in the boiled, solid, chewable and or biteable sense. But then his eyes did a double take and returned to the words emblazoned on the labels of three small bottles perched above a bright rack of bubblegum. Extra tart, sour blast, spray. Harvey could hardly believe it. Even in all his research, he hadn't come across this. A spray, a concentrate. The sour, sweet sensation, literally bottled, distilled, injectable directly onto the tongue like morphine into the pain receptors of the brain. He bought all three bottles for what seemed at that moment like the incredible bargain price of $2.25 apiece. He'd intended to wait until he got to the hotel before trying them in order to savour the moment. Unfortunately, self-control of this order, or rather the lack of it, lies at the very heart of Harvey Gold. This was why various lucky travellers, who happened to be passing through the gates of Terminal 1 of JFK that day, were treated to the sight of the middle-aged son of the world's greatest living author, standing in the queue for the airport taxis, mouth open and eyes closed in some small ecstasy, spraying what appeared to be a sample bottle of cheap perfume onto his stretched-out thirsty dog tongue, gradually coating it blue. David Bedill reading from The Death of Eli Gold. Uh, I love the character of Harvey Gold, by the Thank way, you. I have to say. I think he's, uh, he's, he's, he's such a nebbish. He's such with. a nebbish. He's sort of a Jewish John Self from Money, <laughs> in that he's got all that without any of the kind of sort of big, fighty masculinity. <laughs> uh, and it goes to New York as well, of course. Yes. Um, as Eli Gold lies dying, um, mm. one is reminded of the great American novel and the, mm. the, the shadow that casts. Yeah. Um, it just seems to me that that, as Saul Bellow, you mentioned dying out, Philip Ross not getting any younger. Yeah. Um, is this is this a dying breed? That kind of and the search for the great American novel is that a, is that a, is that a fruitless and dying search? Well, I don't I I, I don't know about that. I, I my the book is really about the great man, and I chose novelists because I read a lot of novels and I'm very interested in those American novelists. And there seems to be a particular kind of urban maleness that they represent. But actually, into the, that category of great men who have lived their life in a very extreme way, particularly towards their wives and children, you could put Picasso, you could put JFK. You could put all sorts of but great Arthur men. Yeah, Arthur Miller, although he's very like them because he's Jewish again. Mm. Um, but they don't have to even be in the arts. They're just, uh, just in general, that man, the one who sort of towered like a colossus over whatever field he was in, that seems to be what's on the way out and dying at the end of last century because I now think that men, even men in the public eye, can't really be like that anymore. But what I also think is that another type of maleness has even not Even leading French it. politicians, David. Well, but as you see... Him being like that within, you know, has blown, been blown apart mm, because he sort of was it. able to carry on like that within a closed culture. And also we don't know if he's guilty, I should say. But anyway, within a closed culture. But actually now the light has been shone on that in a way that absolutely wouldn't have happened 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, Gerald, you're the literary editor of the uh, Jewish Chronicle. Uh, do you see much Anglo-Jewish literature t- towering and reaching as far as, as perhaps American Jewish literature might? Well, it's always been much more self-conscious. Um, America classically is a is a blend of all sorts of cultures, and, and Jews are very much at the heart of it, the centre of it. It's all self confident. There's no apology. In the past, too many British Jewish writers, uh, novelists certainly, have been a little bit apologetic. So if there's a Yiddish word there, there have to be a, has to be a glossary at the back to explain tukas, bottom, and so on. But now it's used unashamedly, and I think um, Howard Jacobson is is starting to um, unravel that sort of thing. It's clearly 
non-apologetic. It's out there. So it's changed, and I think that over the last maybe 20 years, there's been an explosion of cultural Jewishness in this country. You know, I, mean, I think Jews have caught up a little bit with the fact that um, popular culture and higher culture, whatever, is, is often about identity now. And I think you know, other uh, minorities have been quicker to make those statements. I mean, it is amazing that you know, Jews are so uh, you know, into comedy and there were it's loads of British Jewish comedians. And yet, goodness gracious me, happened sort of 15 years uh, before Grandma's house, uh, because that community has got a clearer sense, in a way, of its culture and identity within British culture, and it's taken Jewish Jews a long longer, I think, to get there. The interesting thing, though, is when we, we talk about that internationalism, if you like, uh, of, of Judaism, is that uh, Philip Roth won the International uh, Man Booker recently, which prompted one of the three judges, Carmen Kellil, to resign, saying it was Emperor's <laughs> new clothes. Yeah, she uh, also said, <laughs> "It's like he's sitting on it's your like face." Someone sitting on your face because. He always does the same thing. Now, do you think what she really was saying is that he's too Jewish? I think that's she just didn't want to be associated. It's almost like some Jews, the kind of Jews that Howard is writing about in his book. Sorry to keep talking about Howard's book because yours that's is right. meaty, no, but it's not Jewish enough. For, for, it's not Jewish enough for you, fair enough. Um, uh, that she wants to see. I didn't vote for this. Don't think I vote because it, it, she's, it's a kind of stigma. I think you know this this white male Jewish, heavily masculine writer perceived as misogynist and if I come a clear would, would be associated with voting for him well he can string a sentence together though Philip well, Roth it, well, exactly. it's totally ridiculous. She, she, said he, she said he's no good as a writer even if you don't like Philip Roth which obviously I do uh, although not as much as John Updike you know it's Philip Roth for goodness sake of course he deserves it but I, I have to say I don't think the thing that he goes on about that she's referring to is Jewishness it's sex, I think. And yeah. thus, I thought it was hilarious that in saying, oh, he goes on about the same thing all the time, it's like someone sitting on your face. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> He's best known for playing the founder of Facebook in The Social Network, a role for which he received an Oscar nomination. But now Jesse Eisenberg has taken on an unexpected role in his upcoming film, Holy Rollers. That of Sam Gold, no relation to David Baddiel's Eli, I must add, a Hasidic or ultra-Orthodox teenager from Brooklyn, lured into becoming a drug dealer. I met Jesse on his recent trip to the UK and I asked him whether, as a secular Jew, he was surprised by what he'd found doing research in the Hasidic community. One of the things I found is that they didn't have this monolithic adherence to their religion. A lot of them felt conflicted. Um, I met one guy who, you know, actually didn't want to be in the community but was avoiding something much more significant and so kind of took shelter in the Hasidic life. So for Sam, you know, he, he was on track to become a rabbi and he didn't want to be uh, and he didn't feel as great of a connection to his religion as his next-door neighbor or his father. And uh, it's, it allowed for him to be much more impressionable and enter this other world. Mm. Working for the medical business now. For a doctor? Yes, yeah, sort of. If you're looking for some extra work, it's a good job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he loved you. He loved you. Expenses trip to Europe, see the world. Well, the most important thing to remember, do not open your bag for anybody because of the medicine. Relax, mind your business, and act Jewish. The other actor in the movie, Justin Bartha, and I both felt uh, that, you know, the movie would only benefit from being funnier because, uh, you know, the, the core of the movie is so dramatic. It's, uh, you know, it's... Um, you know, in its way, it's like a coming-of-age story of a you know a character from a Hasidic 
Jewish household starting to smuggle ecstasy. So there's kind of all these very dramatic elements. And yet uh, Justin and I always wanted to kind of make it as funny as possible within that scope and never compromising, um, you know, characters and never compromising the authenticity of it. Mm. The, 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 the film originally played as part of the UK Jewish Film Festival here in, oh, in the UK, in which I'm, uh, I was a board member and a programmer mm. for, so I was delighted that, that we could have your film oh, nice. there. I thought, you know, this year we got films about this and that, we got films about the, the Hasidic drug dealers. Uh, the plot line to a Jewish film, for some reason, whatever it's straight or dramatic, it always sounds like a joke. That's right. Have you heard the one about the Hasidic <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you, you have to kind of... There's, there's an inherent surreal humour going on here that Hasids are doing anything other than sort of keeping strictly kosher and praying. That's right. Yeah, I wonder, I guess it comes out of the Jewish tradition of like um, trying to ingratiate themselves to secular culture and trying to assimilate using humor. Uh, but now that we're fully assimilated, we can make dramas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if you, I mean, doing, doing the, the character in Holy Rollers as well, uh, I wasn't, and this is no detriment to your acting, I was reminded of Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. in some way because you're, you're talking about two people who are very much in a community who kind of then kind of involve themselves in a wider community and find themselves very good at it. That's right. They, they both kind of wind up in a nightclub by accident. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, their paths there are so different. But, uh, but you're right. They're kind of both brought into the community and both attracted to it and disgusted by it. Um, you know, in the case of Holy Rollers, you know, uh, the character I play, Sam, is very attracted to, uh, you know, what he sees as a very alluring world um, of money and, you know, Rolex watches and girls and... Uh, but not drugs. And in the same way, um, in the social network, Mark is attracted to the same thing, girls and and fancy things. But for Mark, it's not money uh, that he's attracted to. He's attracted to feeling a sense of belonging. Uh, what about you? What about your own Jewishness? I am really not religious. I, I go to temple um, uh, twice a year to uh, like an LGBT temple in New York City. The strange thing is, I know I know what it's like to be a completely non-practicing secular Jew or a Hasidic Jew because of this movie. I don't know any of the in between. I only know the like most extreme forms. <laughs> you're, you're all or nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Jess's new film, Holy Rollers, is released in the UK in July. There seems to be an interest, whether in drama or documentaries, about the Hasidim. In fact, uh, only recently the BBC broadcast its Wonderland strand, and there was a documentary called A Hasidic Guide to Love, Marriage and Finding a Bride. Interestingly, one of its main characters uh, was a reformed drug runner. Um, if, you, if you believe the fictions, it seems to be a common occurrence, but I presume it isn't. Well, I don't know. They've been rather a closed community, and uh, this is a strange kind of way of opening up. The main objection that the Hasidim themselves, and a lot of them have, is that this is going to be seen as, and indeed in the case of the uh, BBC programme, representative. And um, these characters are not representative, and they're they're choosing crooks to represent us. Why do you think they seem to sort of uh, be the Jew that people turn to when they want to kind of do a shorthand for us on screen? I think there's an odd... You know, in the, like, here are some strange people, bit like um, Amish, bit like other yeah, sort of yeah. weird because cults. Because you, us three on TV, is no, 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 it's no kind of like look, like it's no brand. Uh, interestingly, there, David, you, you were mentioned uh, in the BBC program. Uh, Who do you think you are? Where people examine their roots. We we found out that you actually have got uh, uh, Hasidim in your family. Is that right? 
Well, my family, uh, there's a very, very from side of it. Uh, I don't know if they're actually Hasids. They might be because they don't like me uh, or indeed any part of our family. It's not just that I'm on telly and doing jokes about sex or whatever they might not like. It all goes back years to some schism that happened. A broigus. to do with religion that happened in like 1893. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I believe Rabbi Badil, there is a Rabbi Badil, David Badil, many years ago, who set up the Yeshiva in Gates. Head, which is one of the most important yeshivas in, in Europe. This is so, a religious school uh, for, yeah, for those who are for those who are not Jewish who are yeah, listening to this. What are you doing? Um, <laughs> so I believe that we have chassids in our family, but I don't know much about them. Uh, that is all for this month. Sounds Jewish. My thanks to David Bedil. Very good luck with your new novel, that's the death of Eli Gold, and with your film, the Y word, kicking that word out of football. And to Gerald Jacobs from the Jewish Chronicle, and of course to Jesse Eisenberg, who's of course listening. Finally, thanks to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters, goodbye. Shalom, shalom.